Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone-Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Annie Highwater. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies in Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. So we're back again uh, tonight, this evening, uh, back in a community conversation. Uh, my name is Laurie McDougall. I am with um, an organization, REST, R-E-S-T, which is a, um, a, a educational group for families that have a loved one with substance use disorder. Um, and we happen to use a particular, um, ally, the Allies in Recovery website. Um, they have a curriculum called CRAFT and we use CRAFT in our REST meetings. Um, and that's enough about me. So now I'd also like to um, uh, pass it over to Tommy and Tommy can mm -hmm. talk about the East Bay Recovery Center and then we'll introduce our guest. Sure, uh, my name is Tommy Joyce. I am the Director of Recovery Support Services at East Bay Community Action Program. Um, and I also oversee the East Bay Recovery Center, which is at 31 Railroad Avenue in Warren. Uh, what we do is peer-to-peer -peer recovery supports. So it's people like myself in long-term recovery who share ourselves and try to um, help another person and, and really support them, whatever pathway of recovery that they might have. So wide variety of services, which is one-on-one -on -one recovery coaching, um, support groups. We Peer-to-peer -peer recovery supports, I always say, is that empathetic ear um, in that time of crisis that usually is builds a relationship to hopefully guide that person on the pathway to recovery, whether it be formal treatment, whether it would be faith-based, whatever it might be, we want to be there to support. Um, I always say that veterans have been doing peer-to-peer -peer su uh, recovery supports for a long, long time, and they probably do it the best. But in the recovery world, we just happen to be veterans of different battles. And, but we have the same mentality where we don't want to leave anybody out there. So, um, you know, we are open to the public. Anybody can come on in um, to, to get support or just come in and say hi and just kind of hang around for a bit. Can I just ask you a quick question mm -hmm. uh, before we introduce Dominique? Tommy, can you just explain what's the difference between a re recovery coach? Because I get this question all the time. What's a recovery coach? What's a sponsor? You know, what? What, what, what is the recovery coach? One of my favorite sayings is stay in your lane. So I happen to wear two hats. I'm also a licensed therapist. So I'm a licensed chemical dependency professional. And uh, I'm also a person in recovery. So I did do clinical work for ooh, almost 10 years, um, working with either adolescents, uh, Medicaid assistant treatment. And uh, I've worked in, in psychiatric. I've worked in a wide variety of of venues in behavioral health um, doing chemical dependency work. And then I do recovery. So the, what it is, so it, the best way to do it is most people think of a recovery coach either as a 12-step sponsor or a, a licensed clinician. So uh, really a 12-step, the, the difference is for a, a recovery coach or a peer specialist, there's no power differential, none at all. We are total equals with the person that's coming in. In the 12-step fellowship sort of a sponsor, they do have some power over that person. So they do tell them and they, and there is, you know, you have to almost not say have to, but they guide them and, and there is kind of a hierarchy that, that happens there. So in the peer world, we support whatever that person wants to do. We never tell someone what they need to do. We suggest things, but we're mostly there to support. A clinician also has power. They're in power. They guide the treatment plan. They make them. They make some decisions for you. They might refer you to a doctor, even there. So, in the peer world, it's creative equals. That's that's, and we're there to support. So, and we're fortunate to have that freedom to do that. So, the thing is, well, when we work with um, people with substance use disorders, we do adhere to some of the policies of 
a licensed clinician, most importantly, confidentiality, which is um, you know, part of the HIPAA regulations, it's 42 CFR. We do abide by those because I, we, we find that people's information is, is almost sacred to us. You know, we don't want to have that go out into the public, but it's more of a, the ultimate judgment-free zone uh, when you come into the peer world. So, you know, I think we do it better than Planet Fitness, to be honest. Um, everybody's welcome to come in and, and we will guide them and, and support them and whatever their pathway to recovery is, whether it's clinical treatment, whether it's exercise, or it's just coming in and, and sharing a little bit about their day with us. If that's their pathway to recovery, we're going to support it 100%. That's not really, that doesn't transition into the 12-step fellowship as a sponsor, and it doesn't really transition into the, the clinical world. But what we do is that we complement those services. So we are, we're a great complement to a 12-step fellowship. We're a great complement to clinical services. Because I always say, in, when I was doing clinical work, you know, I would meet with somebody for 45 minutes to an hour, and then I would do my documentation. I'm, gonna, I'm on to my next patient. What happens at that time? So we pick up where that leaves off. So when that person leaves the office, the peer world, we come into play. We're always there, we're always available. We're there to support in between the sessions. And the same thing is with the 12-step fellowship, we're just a compliment on there. So, you know, I like ketchup on hot dogs. So I did say we're the condiment that goes on on your food. Well, thank you, thank you for kind of uh, giving- Can I ask on your question? Sure, sure. of course. It's always been difficult to find um, recovery coaches that work with folks that are that are still active. Mm -hmm. it, it used to be when you'd ask for recovery coaching, they'd have a requirement around abstinence or a motivation effort. I don't know. Do you have any requirements to no. work with someone? No. So... I think we're going to talk about that a little bit. And it's funny, this conversation has came up a few times with me in the past week. So a lot of times, some of the thought process in, in this, the treatment world has always been abstinence-based. So you have to stop in order for us to help you. I've never took that approach, not even in my clinical work. So I was always in almost a harm reduction mode. So if I was working with somebody and say they were saying, um, I was drinking 12 nips a day, I'd be like, okay, can you do eight? And then come in the next day and say, I did eight. I'm like, good for you. Great. Let's see. Can you do six now? Can we get there? So in the peer world, we, we don't, there's no urine screens. There's no anything. You can come in in any condition and, and we're going to help you. Of course, it, it, we want to guide you on your pathway to recovery. And that sometimes that, that journey is a little bit longer. I, I know mine was, was long to, to be honest, but you know, it, one of the definitions of recovery is uh, a process of change in which one's health and wellness improves um, to lead a self-directed life and you strive to reach your full potential. That definition doesn't stay abstinence. So, but it is a process to get there. So if your life is improving, we're going to guide you on that and support you on that pathway. So I think in years ago, um, you know, if we if we still doing business the way we did business years ago, I, I, with the numbers that are today for, you know, overdose that's happening now, um, it's it's unrealistic. So, you know, I was talking at a governor's task force meeting yesterday, uh, two days ago, and I said, you know, the goal is to keep them alive enough to walk through the door. So we want to make sure of that. So whatever condition they come in. You know, we, we want them. And, you know, I working with law enforcement and, and everybody else. I tell them, you know, that person that you see and you're picking them up off the sidewalk, wherever they are, three or four times a week. That's my people. We want bring them in, you know, and we want them to create that safe space and non-judgmental where somebody can come in under the influence. But we're still going to help them and, and keep them safe for that day and, and, and try to create a plan for them to, to, to better their life. Yeah, and one of the most, I think, most overlooked parts of that definition mm -hmm. of recovery of it is self-directed. Yes. Right? And it's, mm -hmm. it's that others have to have respect for self-directed recovery. Yeah, I, the most, one of the most important things that I was told a long, long time ago, and uh, I can still hear the, the gentleman's voice, and he said, it's a you know, recovery is custom tailored to the individual. So I used to go to this meeting and I would be in a suit every day because it was part of my work. 
and, and the gentleman asked me, so what do you do when you, when you buy one of those fancy suits that you come in here every day with? And I, I said, I go to Paisano. You know, Paisano is my tailor. You know, I was working in the hospitality field and I wore a suit every day to work. And he said, well, why don't you do it with this? He goes, you got to walk around comfortable in this thing. So you got to custom tailor it to yourself. He said, what works for me might not work for you, but a little bit of mine and a little bit of maybe somebody else's and that, but you have to walk around comfortable in this for your life to get better. And I always held that true. So there's no cookie cutter way. There's no magic wand that goes there. You have to find what works for you and then work it to the best of your ability. And some days you work it better than others. But we found that if you have someone to talk to and, and support that, that you can kind of just, or even when you're having a bad day and your phone rings and you look at it and someone's thinking about you, that makes all the difference in the world sometimes. So, you know, it's, we, that's where in the recovery field, we, you know, we encourage people to find their own pathway, whatever it is, and we're going to support them with it. And I tell people, if you have a different pathway, let me know because I'm going to hang it on a hook because you never know one day. I might be desperate to try anything, you know, and I'm going to hang on to that. So, well, you know, it's, I always say in the recovery field, you know, we got to stay green, you know, we got to keep, we got to remain teachable and you never know, but you know, I've seen people change their pathways multiple times and they're, you know, and their life is, is getting better and they're leaving productive lives and they're happy and, and things are going on. So, you know, just like everything else, sometimes your recovery has to roll with the changes a little bit too. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Now a short pause for a word from our partner, Allies in Recovery. Is your loved one resistant to getting treatment? Are you hitting a wall when you try to communicate with them or offer them help? Is your own mental or physical health deteriorating? The CRAFT method, which we teach on our e-learning platform, was designed to address these very challenges. A membership with Allies in Recovery gives you unlimited access to a library of learning videos, ebooks, and worksheets, as well as in-house expert guidance tailored to your situation. Visit alliesinrecovery.net today. A lot of people don't really know what a recovery coach is. They don't mm -hmm. understand what a recovery center is. And uh, the more we can, we can get the word out, I think the better. Um, tonight's topic... Uh, actually, <laughs> we love talking about recovery here, um, mm -hmm. right? But tonight's topic is actually um, we're focused on families and the families that have families and friends that have a loved one um, with substance use disorder. So we have invited Dominique Simon Levine, who is the creator of the Allies in Recovery website. And the Allies in Recovery website is a, um, it's a plethora of resources for families that have a loved one with substance use disorder. And it's based in a methodology called CRAFT, Community Reinforcement and Family Training. Um, but I would like to pass it over. Um, that's my introduction to Dominique. Um, I'd like to pass it over to Dominique and maybe she can just tell us a little bit about herself and then tell us about the website and um, and how we can kind of get it out to the, the Rhode Island community uh, for any families or friends that are struggling with a loved one with substance use disorder. Thank you. It's nice to be with you this evening. Um, so thank you, Lori and Tommy, everybody who's working around the clock on this overdose and epidemic of, of different drugs, of opioids, and, and coming up right behind is, is, I'm afraid, stimulants with methamphetamine mm -hmm. heading mm -hmm. east. And, you know, our work is important. We, as you say, we stay flexible on the ground and, and real with what's happening um, in our families. Lori's work has been sensational all through Rhode Island, her rest groups, using our site to help steer what she does uh, with families in those support groups. Those groups are not only supportive, but they're actually training you to 
learn some skills that are going to change how you respond, how you communicate, how you behave, and how you can intervene and change the course that your loved one is on when they struggle with addiction. This can come sounds contrary to sort of traditional ideas of what you can do when somebody else is active. Um, in Al-Anon, I know I've, I've gone to a lot of Al-Anon meetings in my day, and we, 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 we talk about letting the person um, hit a bottom or um, come, come to terms with uh, a, agreeing they have a problem prior to the family being able to really step in. Allies in Recovery teaches craft, community reinforcement, and family training. It's really different than Al-Anon. It says, um, yes, you can't cure it, you can't control it, um, but you can and you do every day behave and communicate with it. So let's get you uh, really uh, skilled up. Let's get you through essentially the boot camp of, of what you're going to need as a family with somebody you love with addiction. You may need it now, you may need it in a year, we hope not, but we know that addiction has a, a certain pattern and cycle, especially the younger you are or the more chronic you are. Um, and it helps to understand that cycle because then you know what you are responding to. So what we're teaching you is a, is a, is, is a way to see your loved one with new eyes. You're gonna say, okay, my loved one right now, today, in this moment, she or he looks high or as though they're using, and therefore I'm not going to enable that to continue, or my loved one is not looking high on whatever it is they, they take. Um, this is strictly for substance use. Now you're gonna put other issues aside and you're just going to, every time you see your loved one, you're gonna say to yourself, is she higher, isn't she? We will have taught you how to look for those signs you will understand the patterns in your loved one. You will be able to make a really good guess. You may not come up with 100% assuredness that you're right, He's, she's using, she's not using, but you're gonna get very good at being able to tell. You probably are already very good at being able to tell. And, and that fundamental distinction between using and not using, and if you're looking at a harm reduction state, using less, uh, or using a lot, right? So you, you want to consider where you want to land in the question of whether they're using or whether they're not using. And that signals to you how you're going to respond. If they're using, you're going to take away rewards that you may be giving them when they're not using. And we'll talk about not using in a minute. Um, you're going to allow natural consequences. This is material that we've heard for decades. Um, and uh, Al-Anon and other, other family groups would say the same thing. You're gonna allow natural consequences and you're going to remove yourself because you are also a reward. Even if you're nagging and carrying on and doing what you've always done, um, that in a sense is, is attention and rewarding. So you're gonna take yourself out of the equation. It also protects you, gives you a chance to breathe. You, you get yourself out of the picture. Um, so with craft, what happens when you're not using, and this is the part that I so love about craft and is different from anything else I've ever, I've ever heard about with families is you're going to reward non-use. You're going to step in. You're going to notice. You're going to say, hey, I love it when your eyes are clear. You're going to take a $5 video that you bought in the back of Walmart and you're going to give it to him. You know, you've been holding that video till he came home from school, not looking high on marijuana. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a system of, of looking to step in and looking to positively reinforce those moments of non-use. And you're going to try to grow those moments of non-use and believe it or not, you do, you can, and you will. The evidence is you can do it so that the, the use actually drops close to 50%. That is the influence wow. that you have as a family. And I, um, I saw this, pro this, this approach 
oh, going on um, 17 years back in 2002, 2003. And I was, I was really struck with the fact that somebody had looked at what does work in a family? What do you do in a relationship with someone with addiction? Um, and Robert Myers at the University of New Mexico had figured it out and he had studied it. And he had put together nothing earth shatteringly new to a family who's been trying for a long time. Um, at anger, nagging, complaining, screaming, lecturing, sarcasm, all of these things turn out not to work so well. But what does work is, is being loving and being nice and being respectful and being neutral and removing yourself when there are problems rather than stepping in and maybe the ways you have in the past, that that stance of being connected and present and loving with your loved one and saying, here, I am holding out my hand to you. I want to partner with you. Tell me what you need. I will do everything I can to help. And by doing that, you calm things down. You build a bridge between you You've understood how to step in and step away as you see the use coming in and out day to day, day to day. Um, families report such differences and even the smallest change in how they typically communicate, the smallest change in how they might greet a loved one at the door who's two hours late and smelling of booze. And, and what happens to them, to the family member, not the, not the person with addiction, but the benefits to that family member of starting to learn how to unlock this situation that has gotten so tense, so rigid for so long, and you are so fed up and every little sign that says he's doing it again and you are off to the races. You know, it's either you've learned not to say it maybe to them, but you're taking it in and it's hurting you and it's causing you stress-related conditions there are very few studies of family members out there. It's there's there's for the for the longest time family members weren't even considered part of the equation. They were more like the noise in the system. Treatment providers would try to block you out. They assumed that you were problematic rather than part of the solution. They didn't confer with you. Um, they didn't take you seriously. You couldn't make a phone call on behalf of a loved one. I mean, there's all sorts of, of, of information that could and should be shared, perhaps. And yes, there's HIPAA and there's protection issues, but family loved ones will give permission and family members want to be part of the solution. And so there's a whole movement afoot of, of, of families gaining some rights in the system, hopefully gaining some attention on their own, the need to be trained up, hopefully in crafts. Craft is the best answer we have for families. It gets about 60 to 70% of resistant people with addiction uh, to go into treatment, 70%. An, uh, a Johnson Institute intervention, the kind you may see on, on, on the show intervention, the one you typically have seen play out in dramas, um, gets about 25%. And what we, and you've done it without paying $3,000 for a, a private interventionist. Um, Tony, and you've done it in a way that you can repeat if you need to repeat it. Tony and I just had this conversation today, yes. this very involved conversation about the Johnson intervention mm -hmm. um, and how, you know, it, it might be good in the en entertainment industry. Um, but that actually, uh, and this softer approach from Kraft actually um, has a higher success rate of actually getting your loved one to engage with some form of treatment. Um, and, uh, and also that it's, that it's less painful and less traumatic for the family never, you know, never mind what it does to your loved one with substance use disorder, you know, just banging heads and, you know, everybody's angry, but it's also very traumatic for family members as well. And um, craft can kind of help with that. Um, yeah. Right. It's a lot less traumatic. 
Um, right. And one of the biggest reasons that Johnson in Institute inter in Institute interventions fail is the family can't pull it together to create that room that you get invited into with the professional interventionists. You sit down in front of the family and the family you know, reads a letter about how they love you and what their alcohol or drug use is doing to you and, and, and whisks you off to some open door treatment place, which is also extremely hard to do and with that kind of timing. Um, so yeah, families can't get it together. They have their own problems. And, and so that accounts for the low outcome of Johnson Institute interventions. And as I was saying, they cost. And really, it's not hard to do if you prep it with the kind of work we're we're discussing and craft. Um, you are you're building the bridge. You're you're learning to communicate. You're le learning to listen. You're learning how to step in and how to step away. You're learning to dance with your loved one in a way that engages them. And by the time after six or seven weeks, you sit down at the kitchen table and say, "Hey, Joe, you know." I am so proud of the efforts you've been making. You know, you got on medication for the opioid addiction. It's helped so much. I, I see, I see what's happening though. It seems like your your cocaine use is going up, and you know, I just wonder if there's something we can add to what you're doing that may help you binge less. Mm -hmm. Right? It's it's that small a conversation around the table, and I got a list of places. Uh, contingency management is really interesting. Look, read about that. It's cool. They pay you not to use, um, you know, whatever it takes. It's not make it sound good. I found a place that does it. It takes our insurance. Boom. And, and, and you don't want to hear about it today. No problem, Joe. Thanks for listening. We'll, we'll talk again another time. That's the whole intervention. What do you think, Tommy? It's hugs rather than shrugs. That's I, I, yeah. I've been saying this for a while because, like you said, going back to old thinking, it was you know why do you have to lose everything and hit rock bottom before you change? So you know in we we talk about we talked about the, the clinical world and the twelve step world. So a lot of times they sit there and say you need to let them suffer, you need to let them lose everything before they change. But is that person willing to take responsibility for the outcome? So you know in. in so what happens when that person gets totally disconnected? They're already feeling negative. They're already feeling like they're not worth anything, you know? And then what happens is they get put in a place where they contemplate just kind of ending it all, you know? And, and who's going to take responsibility for taking, for giving that advice? Because I know personally, you know, I've been in that spot and, you know, in, in, in making that attempt, and and then realizing afterwards, you know, it was it just kind of validated what I was feeling about myself and that I shouldn't be around. But you know, who takes responsibility for 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 that? Because you then you go back into some of the fellowships and they tell you, well, you just didn't want it bad enough. So from my experience, it's usually is that compassionate and that empathetic kind of conversations and, and giving the options that work. You know, I think we should catch people before they hit rock bottom, you know, and sometimes the families and I've worked with families in the past where there's that conflict of should I just let them go or, or should I should I give them a hug? And should I listen to what everyone's telling me or should I do what my heart's telling me and I want to hug them and I want to grab them and I don't want to let them go and I want to let them know that I love them. And there's a conflict that's there, you know, and, and it's very traumatic for the for the families at that point. But from, from my experience is, you know, the, the craft approach works, you know, it's because families recover together, you know, and, and on the opposite, when I've worked with, I worked with adolescents for a, a long time in their families, you know, sometimes the family relapses way, way before the, the individual does. Right. So, you know, so the family needs to get, I used to say, you, you have, if you, if you plug some, if you unplug somebody from their family system, and you plug them back in, if that plug doesn't change, it, it, you're going to get the same outcome. So everybody has to heal together and, and get the help that they need. And the interventions, um, you know, I, I'm actually an interventionist for problem gambling and, and, and went through the trainings. And, you know, I have friends of mine who, who are um, licensed interventionists. And the, 
the outcome is is minimal. You know, you you get blindsided, and I've been. It's happened to me in the past where you you, you look around and you got people there, and everyone's telling you what to do, and you're overwhelmed, and you're already feeling you're using when you don't want to. You're already feeling bad enough, and now everyone's validating that, and you're just overwhelmed. You know, and then you just feel yeah, you just you just want to leave. You know, and you just want to escape. So. Um, I love the craft program because it's been what I've been saying for years of, of, you know, we should be a little more compassionate and empathetic to that person. It's not like that person doesn't love you enough to stop. It's not, that's out of the question. You know, it, there's, a, there's a saying that sometimes um, people with substance use disorders, we love too much. And what happens is we just can't, it, we, we disconnect and, 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 and these happening is then, you know, we look for the validation and negativity to keep doing what we're doing, you know? And so I love the concept of craft and what's there. This podcast is produced in partnership with Allies in Recovery. Join today and begin our self-guided e-learning program. From the comfort of your own home and at your own pace, you will learn how to shepherd your loved one toward treatment and long-term recovery. Our in-house experts, led by Dominique Simon Levine, also provide personalized guidance to members. Learn more at alliesinrecovery.net and join today. But we do have a question, if you can expand on this, Dominique. So someone would like you to expand upon the contingency management that you mentioned. Contingency management, the idea of either paying someone has some shown some effect, especially with stimulants, uh, cocaine. And so you pay the person to come in when they have a urine that's free of cocaine. Um, and you might pay them a token amount, maybe 10 or $20, or maybe even best since you're a, a, a gambling uh, uh, interventionist, you might know a little bit about gambling, which is this intermittent reinforcement. Um, and so you might pay, you, you might have a fishbowl. This is very common in, in groups now. You, you come in and you give your urine and if it's free of drugs, you, you, uh, you're, you're able to put your hand in the fishbowl and sometimes it comes out with, a, with a, a nice positive saying and other times it might come out with $50 or a coffee card or something. So. Um, that sort of contingency management is, 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 is really encouraging people to drop their use. It and is. once you drop your use and learn how to motivate through an urge mm -hmm. um, and a create, you know, you're able to, to, to flex that muscle, it becomes easier and easier. So people actually end their use, um, studies have found. And it can continue to support recovery. I worked in a um, Medicaid assistant treatment clinic in Providence. And we used to have, we couldn't put the name, we would put their client number. We would have the, the patient of the month. So people who were keeping their, keeping their appointments, their, their urine screens were, were negative. They were engaged, things were going well. And we put the certificate up there. And people would be so proud to say, look, that's me look, I, I'm doing this, I'm doing well. And it was some, it was that positive reinforcement that really kept them going. And, and, you know, we're comfortable in being negative. We're not used to people giving us positive reinforcement, but we still, we respond to it, you know, and whether it's a little bit of, you know, cause I know for a fact, I still got little tokens like that from my past treatment experiences, whether it was a, a rock with a positive saying or a keychain or something, of and and you keep them and I've kept them all these years and and I'm still proud of it. I'm like, yeah, that's that's mine. I, I did it. So you know, I'm, I'm glad we're kind of talking about this because I think this is what um, why I gravitated so much to craft um, in my journey, and I think it has a lot to do with the I'm I'm a, I was a teacher, right? I left my job. I was a high school math teacher. And I learned that having little rewards and reinforcing the effort in the classroom, I would have these, um, these tiny, like stupid little rewards. Like um, I had fairy wings, I had big bubble wands, 
I had those sticky frogs that you would throw and they would stick to the wall or stick to, or like um, long nailed fingers that they could put on the ends of their fingers. Just really ridiculous $1 trinket type things that I would get at like Target. But I was amazed um, at how we, I literally would, I mean, I taught high school math. So talking, I'm teaching, um, I'm teaching like 17 year old, 16, 17, 18 year old young men. And I would give them, I would give them a reward for doing something for some kind of effort. And I would give them the bag and they could pick whatever they wanted. They loved the fairy wings, right? They loved the bubble, <laughs> bubble points, right? And I was amazed that at how powerful that was, at how um, th that, and the other thing I did was for homework, uh, I would stamp their hand, or no, not, not their hand, I would stamp their homework. I had two different stamps. One was a thumbs up, one was a good work. And, um, and it depended on how much effort was put into your homework, which stamp you would get. Those kids lived lived by those stamps. Can, can I please get a thumbs up, Mrs. McDougal? Can I please get a thumbs up? And just seeing, I mean, we're talking about young adults here. We're not talking about, you know, fourth grade, second grade. We're talking about 11 and 12th grade kids that are going to go off to college living by these dumb little stamps that I'm going to put on their homework. So understanding the power of of rewarding positive behavior is, this is a huge piece and a huge foundation of craft. That and the communication skills, which the communication skills in and of themselves can be rewards, right? The, even the communication skills, like how you communicate with your loved one. Geez, you know, I know that's a real struggle, but you know, today you went down to the East Bay Recovery Center and you visited with Tommy. That's, you know what? that's a step in the positive direction. That alone is going to get some repeat behavior out of it. Yeah. That alone is powerful. It's, it's every, because it's that sense of pride that you did something constructive for once. You know, I know for me, that's the whole, and, and you wear it well. You and know, you get to stay connected. You get to stay connected with me, right? Like I'm noticing your positive behavior. Yeah, somebody's noticed me. I know that that's always been very important. I think, especially for people with addiction, who's so oversensitive to mm -hmm. how they're being seen often. Um, just a couple points I just want to loop back on. Um, if if somebody listening is is concerned about stimulant use in in a family member, um, our site Allies in Recovery, which you can access for free dur during COVID, has a whole list of uh, a recent uh, meta-analysis of contingency management and its approach. This was talked about last week in the Washington Post. We're, we're re-publishing uh, it on our site. Also, we list all of the approaches that have merit for stimulant use. There aren't many, um, but contingency management's at the top of the list, but also cognitive behavioral therapy and some DBT work. So the, you can just do dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, and it's contentious, as you can imagine, paying people with addiction to not use. And so it's having a lot of issues getting coverage by insurance companies. So prepare for a fight, but the idea is there. It's the idea of, of, of incentivizing people rather than disincentivizing people when they, they don't have a clean drug uh, urine. But don't they, Dominique, don't they, um, my understanding of the contingency uh, type program, it is, it isn't necessarily that they get cash. It's that mm. they get like a point, there's like a point system mm. and then they, then they can, um, it's like a car and then they can use it to purchase certain things and right. So it's like they're getting in the recovery world. I would say that 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 is what those studies are showing. Is that it's a cash recovery card, but it is cash. It's ten dollars, twenty dollars, and you know it's got that value to it. And and um, 
but it's a recovery card. So you won't be able to get ATM dollars out or uh, spend it on liquor or try and convert it by getting cash back from the purchase of something. When I managed a residential treatment program for adolescents, we used a point system. So if they behaved, um, they got X amount of points per week. If they did something, they would lose points. But they could use those points to get a nice coffee. I would drive to the Dunkin' Donuts and get them a nice coffee. Or if they had enough, if they saved them all up, they could get McDonald's for the, all 16 boys. Or a lot of times they, we would give them weekend passes. So they would save their points up and they would get extra hours to spend with their family. And they, people were proud. They were proud to say that I can, you know, I want to ice coffee today, you know, or I have enough points to do this. And, and it motivated positive behavior. And it was acknowledging that they were doing well, you know, and it, but it was, it worked in a different way. They knew there was certain expectations, you know, and they met them themselves. They had expectations of themselves as saying, you know, I want to spend some extra time with my family this weekend. So I'm going to, you know, this is what I can do. And uh, it, it worked extremely well back then. Can I ask a question about this? Um, because I think this is a question that probably comes up a lot um, uh, with substance use disorder. Where, you know, I talked about being in high school and working with high school students. You taught, you're talking about a younger group as well, Tommy. Mm -hmm. What about the family? Uh, what what would you say to the family that comes in? Because I this stuff is just as powerful. What I have mm -hmm. found just as powerful with someone who's 20 as someone who's 30 as someone who's 40 right um it 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 is but what do you say to that family that well I'm not going to treat you know he's not 16 or she's not you know a teenager right what would you say to them as far as like uh using rewards and changing communication and uh well I would ask him what, what process they were using you know, and say, why don't you try something different? You know, of th this is a way to have this continual growth of, of positive change. You know, how, how can we do it? Because a lot of times if, that, if they, believe it or not, back then, if they were in my office, they, that was last, they've tried everything at that point in time. And, you know, that those punitive kind of um, attitudes that doesn't work. You know, you're not gonna, you can't just, you can't scare somebody into into changing. So you, you've got to embrace it and you've got to nurture it. So it was just having, you know, I would always say start with a conversation, you know, and at my back then working with families, I would say, you know, once or twice a week, have dessert. So have a family dinner, but during dessert, put some food on the table or some chair, whatever. And that's when you have your conversation. Because if you have the conversation in the living room where everyone's staring at each other, it, 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 it it's like an intervention. You you feel like you're you're on on stage, but if you if it's over dessert and you're eating and you're talking and you're having an open honest conversation, things get a lot better at that point in time. So you know a lot of times it's it's that old type of thinking. You know um, you you got to set the boundaries. They got to change. You got to be tough. You got to do it, it. It doesn't work. You know, um, and, and that old time thinking, unfortunately. Um, there's negative consequences that that happens, you know, and it, you hate to see that, that that's there. So, you know, I always tell people when, when it comes to tough love is if you're going to do that, are you willing to know what the consequences could be? And are you willing to deal with that? If not, then let's try a different approach and try a more loving and compassionate kind of conversation. Cause I think that's going to be a little bit more attractive at that point. Yeah, the, the, the idea that um, you continue to parent at whatever age too, I think we see a lot of families who, who get caught in that. The, your your 30 year old is acting like a 15 year old. Mm -hmm. So you're acting like a parent of the 15 year old and, and that's not a working solution um, because they will, they will run circles around you. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the need to, to step away, to have an adult relationship with an adult and to say, you know, I am not responsible for your use. I love you dearly. I'm gonna partner with you. I'm gonna be here. We're gonna talk this stuff out anytime you want. I am here to listen. 
and I respect everything you're trying to do and all the problems you're having. And, and, and you don't have to say it out loud, but you have to act that way. That provides the compassion and the, and the bonding and the connection that you're going to need to break those old patterns of parenting and policing and fixing and paying off and looking for them all night long. You know, it, it takes you off the hook. It provides the kind of distance from your loved one that you need in order to create now a bubble for yourself of, of, of self-care and self-protection. We talk about that almost as much as we do talk mm -hmm. about your loved yeah. one and, and what you should or should not be doing with your loved one. But, you know, this bubble of self-care and learning and learning to, to be distinct from your loved one, less enmeshed from your loved one and everything mm -hmm. they do up and down, up and down on their coattails, back up, you know, it's, it's, it's exhausting. And it's not effective. If you can just pull away a little more, you take better care of yourself. Mm -hmm. You start to see them differently. You start to, 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 to work on that love and care and partnership and respect. They see you differently. You are, it's a whole new relationship. It's an exciting new relationship. One of, one of the things that we talk about, um, we talk about in rest all the time um, because rest is, we use the allies and recovery website for curriculum. Um, and one of the things that we talk about is trying to have a conversation with your loved one that is not focused on anything having to do with fixing them or helping them with any, it's just, just a conversation where you're not. So I like this idea of, Hey, set a dessert. Let's get some ice cream out on the table. Let's just talk about the day, right? And not talking about, you know, well, did you go to the recovery center today? And how was it? And did it, right? Just put that aside. Um, because I think oftentimes we're so frantic, right? With For the need to help and for the need for things to get better. Um, that we get lost and we don't actually have talk about anything else. It's, it's our total focus, especially with our loved one. And, um, and I think when we do that, we're oftentimes kind of driving home that uh, w there's something wrong with you. And every time you talk to me, mm -hmm. I have to bring it up, right? I have to, yeah. right? It, so kind of getting away from that. And you know what, I'm gonna back off I'm going to back off. And right now it's just about me spending time with you because I love you. And that's, that's it. And this is true for, for parents with children or, or uh, partners, uh, different dyads. So you could, be, you could be trying to help a grandparent. Um, but, but the key is that you're, you're, you're open and, and you're, you're, you're willing to, to, to accept what they're saying. You're willing to, uh, to, to listen and, 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 and just be an open hand, willing to pull them up if, if that's what they want. It's so, it's so key, it's so key. And, and it makes a difference so quickly. Um, our, fam our family members feel better. They feel better and they feel hopeful when they see these little changes. We have dozens of little change ideas for you. You can mm -hmm. come on the site and we'll pull them all together and show them to you. But you go out there and just try one or try this one or try pulling back over here and try pulling back on that little sarcastic voice you have when he's an hour late. You know, it's like, just just pull it back a little and you'll see the change. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating and it's hopeful hope building, a realistic hope, as Lori and I like to talk about, realistic hope for families. I like it too, because it expands the definition of detachment. Detachment, sometimes people think that's completely turning your back. It's not. The detachment is simply your behavior is having a negative effect on me and I need to take care of myself. You know, and that's the, the true definition. It's not cutting you off completely or anything there. It's you're having your behaviors having a negative impact on me, and this is what I need to do to take care of myself. And and, and you're not you're just pulling away. 
Yeah, you're not pulling yes, away a little bit. Yeah, Al Anon always had these ideas with, you know, they, they, it, it wasn't designed as an intervention and, and, and people took it to sort of extreme black and white places. You, you must detach, you must never, you, you know, all of these musts or nevers. And, and, and when the reality is it's all in degrees, it's in degrees of, of connection, it's in degrees of, of resistance or motivation on the part of your loved one at any moment. You need to pay attention to that resistance and motivation because when they're motivated, we show you how and to find it, even when it's teeny tiny, it exists in your loved one at times. And that's when you talk about treatment. The rest of the time you do as Lori is suggesting, you know, keep yes. it light, keep it on mm -hmm. the day, keep it, love it, you know, there's no point in making this a, you know, a, a, a boxing match. No, the, the must, the you must and you have to do not work. Nope. But suggestions, you make a suggestion or give someone options, they'll, they'll, they will actually, will, will take that into real consideration and, and appreciate you doing that. Well, uh, this has been wonderful. This has been a great conversation tonight and we're coming to the end um, of our conversation. I want to thank Dominique for coming on and visiting with us today. Um, if anybody is interested in going and taking a look at the website, which I think everybody should, um, you can get to the Allies website. It's at www.alliesinrecovery.net. Um, you can get on to that website uh, through that um, uh, uh, address, but also you could go to the REST website and I can also get you connected to the Allies in Recovery website. So REST website is www.resthelps.org. Um, also, you can get connected with Tommy. Um, through the East Bay Recovery Center. He can connect you with me. I can connect you with Tommy. Um, so, uh, so we're all working together to kind of um, uh, create a more supportive uh, and loving, compassionate community. Um, so thank you to all our viewers for coming here and visiting with us tonight. Um, a Community Conversation is an initiative of the Bristol Health Equity Zone. Rhode Island's HEZs provide a collaborative structure, creating um, opportunity for diver diverse range of community organizations and members to collaborate on shared goals. As a part of this collaboration, the Bristol HEZ has created the um, Help Is Here page to bring over 100 health and wellness resources together in one page. And that's at helpisherebristol.com. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye, Tommy. Bye, Dominique. Bye. See everyone next month. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesandrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, our production team, and Michael Mouboussin for the original music composition. <laughs>